2: Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 191. Last episode ended with police in Australia, realizing they had a bona fide serial killer case, and the man was on the loose. And not just a madman killing innocent people, This serial killer mutilated his victims in a gruesome manner and showed no signs of stopping. In this episode, I bring to you the final part in this two-part expose covering William the Mutilator MacDonald. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Amy, Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christie, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Craig, Sid, Derek, Emily, Fawn, Florida Man, James, Janine, Jennifer, John, Johnny, Jonathan, Caitlin, Kathy, Christina, Kylie, Lance, Lisa, Lisbeth, Magic Man, Madeline, Meow, Missy, Nick, Oakley, Operation Brownie Pockets, Robert O., Robert R., Russell, Sabina, Skortnia, Scott, Sputnik the Radio, Susanna, The Duggletons, Trent, Val, and Vanessa, you are the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK producers club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available one hundred percent ad-free to my TSK producers club on Patreon.com/slash The Serial Killer Podcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise, and of course. If you wish to donate fifteen dollars a month, that's only seven fifty per episode. You are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, the listener, A rainy day in Sydney. It's grey outside, and we stand next to a classic homicide detective. Perhaps he even has a trench coat. And a fedora. Although, I doubt it. At his feet lies the mutilated body of Ernest Cobbin, whom friends and family always refer to as Ernie. The detective had little idea of where to begin. The man was an alcoholic, yes, but according to everyone who knew him, he was a kind man with no enemies. There were no fingerprints, not even on the beer bottles strewn about. The mutilator had wiped them clean. There were no witnesses. The killer and Ernie had been well hidden from view of anyone. To make matters worse, Ernie was married and had two children. It had been rather recent that he had moved out from the family home and taken to the streets due to alcoholism, but his family still loved him. In order to catch whoever was targeting men down on their luck, police initiated a large-scale undercover operation as well as constant surveillance of public toilets and places where down-and-outs congregated. Authorities did not want to start a panic, but saw no option but to issue a public warning. It read as follows, and I quote, We believe police pressure is forcing this murderer into the open, and he could now strike anywhere at any time. We feel that any man who is alone in a lonely street or park for more than ten minutes could be murdered and mutilated by this maniac. We believe he is a psychopathic homosexual who is killing to satisfy some twisted urge." That William MacDonald was a quote-unquote psychopathic maniac is not in doubt. However, Unlike many other serial killers, who are very much proud of their work, Macdonald felt like he was two people. The killer was, after he had calmed down after the murder, a stranger to him, someone he watched as if from afar. When he read about his acts in the media, he was frightened, not only by the prospect of being actively hunted by every single police officer in Sydney, but by who he was turning into. But he was not just frightened by it, he was also fascinated. He joined in with his colleagues in discussions about the mysterious mutilator, and listened to their theories of what type of person he may be. MacDonald would secretly get upset when they referred to the mystery murderer in unflattering terms such as a sexual deviant and pervert. He did not see himself as perverted or depraved. He simply had some anger issues he needed to sort out. For a time MacDonald thought his workmates suspected him of being the mutilator, but it was only his own paranoia. The thought of giving himself up to police also crossed his mind, but he had to admit to himself that he, deep down, enjoyed the killing too much to stop as with most psychopathic serial killers the urge to kill and mutilate grew inside him as time went by he kept it at bay by furiously masturbating to the memory of both being raped and taking bloody revenge but at a certain point the memories simply did not cut it he needed a fresh kill he needed release. And so it was that on the morning of Saturday, the 31st of March, 1962, William MacDonald purchased another long-bladed, razor-sharp sheath knife from Mick Simmons' sports store. He packed it in his bag with his raincoat and plastic bag. His heart was pounding from excitement. He felt powerful again as he went on the prowl. It was raining slightly that night, and William MacDonald was wearing his raincoat. The rain did not bother him at all. The dour weather made sure that fewer people were outside, and the potential for witnesses was significantly mitigated. As the sun went down behind rainy dark grey clouds, around 10 p.m., he left the Oxford Hotel in Darlinghurst. He had spotted a potential victim— Mr. Frank Gladstone MacLean was walking alone in the rain, obviously heavily intoxicated. The man was shambling down Bork Street and past the Darlinghurst police station. MacDonald sauntered up to the man, and with his trademark charm, he struck up a conversation with the drunken MacLean and suggested that they turn into Bork Lane to get proper drunk. As they rounded the unlit corner, MacDonald quickly drew out his knife and plunged the knife into Frank's throat. Frank Maglean was a tall, thin man, well over 185 centimeters tall, and could have made mincemeat out of the much smaller MacDonald had he not been so drunk. Frank, even though he was very drunk— very much still felt the knife sink deep into his throat. The pain would have been extreme beyond imagining. Although drunk and in shock, he still tried to put up a fight. MacDonald simply stabbed him again in the face, and as Frank turned away trying to protect himself, MacDonald punched him in the face, forcing him off balance. As Frank fell, moaning in pain and fear, MacDonald closely followed. He was by then in a state of frenzy, and stabbed Frank repeatedly in the head, neck, throat, face, and chest, until, and well after, he was dead. As he stood panting, with a raging erection, over Frank's mutilated body, MacDonald was absolutely soaked and covered in his victim's blood. He dragged the body a few meters further into the lane, lowered his victim's trousers, and, cutting from the scrotum, in an upward stroke, sliced off Frank McLean's genitals. Even though the weather was grim and few people were about, MacDonald still feared he would be caught in the act. He had not had much patience with Frank. His rage had boiled over, and he had attacked as soon as they left the well-lit Bork Street. As he put the genitals in his plastic bag, he heard voices and a baby crying as people walked past the entrance to the dark alley he was in. In his paranoia, he expected a police car to pull up any minute. But his luck held. No one even glanced in his direction. The mutilator peeked out from the alley and, and, satisfied that no one was coming, wrapped his knife and the plastic bag in the raincoat, put it in his bag, and strolled down Bork Street. He also took the bottle of sweet sherry that he and McLean had been drinking, as it was covered in fingerprints. He passed several people along Bork Street, but they paid him no attention. They were too preoccupied with keeping under their umbrellas and hurrying to wherever they were going to notice the mutilator. Back at his room, MacDonald washed Frank's genitals in the sink and put them in a clean plastic bag. In the morning, after having slept with the genitals, he threw the plastic bag with its grisly contents off the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Frank Magline, a war pensioner, had left a Surrey Hills hotel earlier in the evening, carrying a bottle of wine to walk to his room in Albion Street not far away. He was seen turning into Little Bork Street at about 10.35 p.m. by three trainee nurses of nearby St. Margaret's Hospital. At 10.50 p.m., He was found lying in the gutter by a Mr. and Mrs. Cornish, who believed that the crying of the baby may have warned the murderer of their approach and in turn may have had saved theirs and their baby's lives. The police were so organized in their hunt for the mutilator at the time of Frank McLean's death that within minutes there were thirty detectives at the murder scene But again, the mutilator had fled without a trace. The murders were unprecedented in Australian history. Police could not recall more violent or sickening crimes. One theory was that the murderer was a deranged surgeon. So-called experts said the removal of Frank McLean's genitals had been done with a scalpel, by someone with years of surgical experience. Police even listened to clairvoyants. The most notorious of these at the time, Rosaline Norton, claimed to be in touch with the mutilator when she had her daily chats with the devil. Police investigated just in case. A special police task force was set up to track down the killer who was causing them so much embarrassment. Teams of detectives worked around the clock checking out every possible lead, and there were plenty of possible leads. Police phones ran hot. Houses were raided on the slightest suspicion that the mutilator might be hiding there. Night shelters and hostels were checked and rechecked. It all turned out awash. The mutilator still eluded police. By now the police dossier on the mutilator was inches thick, and they were prepared to try anything which included sending the details to Interpol in the hope that the killer may be identified by similar crimes overseas. This led them investigating the whereabouts of an American soldier who had been charged with the murder of a 13-year-old boy in Germany in almost identical fashion to the mutilator murders. Also in Melbourne, a 23-year-old German immigrant who had been questioned in an unrelated incident was detained. Both Interpol leads proved fruitless. The reward for information leading to the arrest of the mutilator was increased to five thousand pounds, a very large amount of money in the early 1960s. On the 14th of April, a young airman, Patrick Bryan, informed police that he had been attacked by the mutilator in Goulburn Street, not far from where Frank McLean was murdered. Bryan said that his attacker scaled a high fence and lunged at him with a long-bladed knife but missed, nicking him only slightly. He said that the mysterious assailant was hissing as he attacked. He was described as being tall and solid, of foreign appearance, between thirty and forty years old, and wearing a light-coloured suit. Unfortunately, Nothing came of this as it was discovered that Royan was an alcoholic undergoing psychiatric treatment and had cut himself and made the story up to get a bit of attention. An unsympathetic judge gave him 18 months in prison. In the meantime, things were not going quite so well for William MacDonald in his private life. In totally unrelated incidents, He had a severe falling out with his landlord and in the same week he got fired from his mail-sorting job at the postal department. MacDonald had saved a bit of money over the years and he decided to go into business for himself. Still using the assumed name of Alan Edward Brennan, he paved £560 for a mixed business in Burwood an inner western suburb of Sydney. In his little shop, he made sandwiches and sold a variety of items. The shop was also an agency for a dry-cleaning company. MacDonald loved it. He had no landlord standing over him, and he did not have to answer to anyone at work. He lived in the residence above the business, and for the first time in his life he was left alone. So, when the urge to kill came on him again, he did not have to worry about the risk of being caught doing his thing in a public place. He could bring his victims home and have his way with them at his own leisure. The urges to murder and mutilate came again stronger than ever before, and one night early in November 1962, about half a year after his last murder, William MacDonald, went to a wine saloon called the Wine Palace. The saloon lay opposite the People's Palace in Pitt Street in the heart of downtown Sydney, and MacDonald did not come there to drink. He was on the hunt. At the Wine Palace he met forty-two-year-old James Hackett, a petty thief and derelict who had only been out of jail for a couple of weeks. It was easy to charm James with promises of free booze and good company. MacDonald took James back to his new residence and continued drinking until James passed out on the floor. Using a knife from his store, MacDonald started stabbing the sleeping James. On the first plunge, the long knife went straight through James's neck, but, unsurprisingly, James woke up and shielded the next blow with his arm, thus diverting the knife into MacDonald's other hand, cutting it badly. With blood pouring from the wound in his hand, MacDonald unleashed renewed homicidal rage on James. Roaring, he brought the knife down with both hands and plunged it through James's heart, killing him. Almost instantly, the floor was awash with blood, but that did not stop Macdonald. He continued to attack James's body with the knife until he had to stop for breath. He sat in the massive pool of blood beside the body, puffing and panting. There was blood everywhere; it was splattered all over the walls and the ceiling and it had collected in big puddles on the floor. He bandaged his hand with a dirty dishcloth and set about removing James's genitals. But the knife was now blunt and bent from the ferocity of the attack. Too exhausted to go down to the shop to get another one, MacDonald sat covered from head to foot in blood hacking away at James's scrotum with the blunt and bent blade. He stabbed the penis a few times and made some cuts around the testicles before finally giving up and falling asleep where he sat. In the morning, MacDonald woke to find himself covered in sticky, drying blood. He was lying next to the victim, James, the pools of blood had soaked through the floorboards and threatened to drip onto the counters of his shop. Although somewhat shocked of the ferocity of his own attack, MacDonald felt better than for several months. He felt sated and was not paranoid about being caught. After all, the murder had taken place in the privacy of his own home. So he had a bath, cleaned himself up, and went to the hospital, where he had some stitches put in his hand. He told the doctor that he had cut himself in his shop. It took MacDonald the best part of the day to clean up the mess. The huge pools of blood on the linoleum could not be scrubbed out, and he had to tear it up, break it into bits, and throw it out. He also removed all of James's blooded clothing, leaving only the socks. Like many serial killers after him, such as John Wayne Gacy, MacDonald figured a great hiding place for his victim would be right under his own building. So MacDonald dragged the dead and naked James underneath his shop and left him there. Every few hours he went back to the body and dragged it a little further into the foundations of the building until it was jammed into a remote corner of the brickwork out of view and almost impossible to see. MacDonald left all of James's blooded clothing with the corpse. As he sat back in his living room, he was finally calm enough to realize the enormity of his crime and how easily he could be discovered. His apartment looked like a scene from hell. He had tried to clean the blood off the walls, but was unsuccessful. The pools of blood were dried up, but in their place were huge blotches, clearly visible at a glance as nothing else than blood. He feared that if the police would come looking for James, they would immediately arrest him. Also, there was the cab driver who had driven them to his place on the night of the murder. MacDonald feared the man would remember both himself and James. Paranoid and terrified, William MacDonald packed his bags and caught a train to Brisbane, where he moved into a boarding-house, dyed his greying hair black, grew a moustache, and assumed the name of Alan MacDonald. Every day he bought the Sydney newspapers expecting to read of the murder of James and how police were looking for a man named Brennan in connection with the mutilator murders. But as the days turned into weeks and months there was no mention of any corpse or any search for the missing Brennan. MacDonald was beside himself with worry. The mystery of it all was driving him crazed with paranoia. However, although he did not know it, William MacDonald did not have cause for alarm at all. He had been declared dead, and no one was looking for a dead man. If
0: you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time seems to be a dwindling resource nowadays. Work, family, bills, chores, and the endless time thief of social media. But imagine if you will, dear listener, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. So, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com A few days after Macdonald left for Brisbane, customers wanting to pick up their dry-cleaning had become concerned that no one was at the shop. Neighbours assumed that the nice Mr. Brennan had left without telling anyone. After three weeks, a putrefying smell was coming from the vicinity of the empty shop. After a month, the smell was so overwhelming that neighbors called the health department, who in turn called the police, to break the door in of the shop. The smell in the shop was hideous. It led police to the rotting body of James Hackett. The corpse was so badly decomposed and mauled by rats that it was impossible to positively identify. The police bundled it into an ambulance, and sent it off to the morgue at nearby Rydalmere Hospital, where the body was found to be so putrid that the mortician carried out the autopsy in a shed in the hospital grounds. The only thing they could determine was that it was a male, aged about forty, the same age as the missing Brennan. At this stage, police assumed it was the body of the missing shop proprietor, Alan Brennan, who had crawled under his shop, for reasons known only to himself, and electrocuted himself. Police had no reason to suspect foul play. Everything was normal. It looked like an accidental death. The body was buried in a pauper's grave at the Field of Mars Cemetery, under the name of Alan Edward Brennan. The only person who was not completely satisfied with police investigations into the death was the coroner, Mr. F. E. Cox, who quizzed the police thoroughly before he handed down his decision. As I like to tell my dear listeners from time to time, if I could freely choose another profession, it would be a pathologist. There is a saying about medical doctors that goes as follows. General practitioners can't help you because they know nothing. Surgeons can't help you because they only think they know everything. And pathologists know everything. But by then it is too late. Mr. Cox listened as police told him that the body was naked except for a pair of socks. And that there was no reason why they should suspect foul play. Police also told Mr. Cox that fingerprints had been taken, and they failed to match up with anyone on record. The government medical officer testified that there were no broken bones, and that death had occurred at least a fortnight before he examined it. What Mr. Cox was not told was that the police did not find it unusual that the singlet found alongside the body had dozens of knife-cuts in it, and that there were large blood-stains on the floor and on a mattress in the apartment above the shop. Even without the knowledge of these incredible police oversights, Mr. Cox was not convinced, and returned an open verdict, and said, and here I quote, IT SEEMS EXTRAORDINARY THAT THE BODY OF MR. BRENNAN SHOULD HAVE BEEN FOUND IN THE POSITION AND IN THE CONDITION IN WHICH IT WAS FOUND. ACCORDING TO THE EVIDENCE, THE deceased HAD NEITHER HIS TROUSERS ON, NOR HIS BOOTS OR SHOES OR SINGLETS. HE WAS CLAD ONLY IN HIS SOCKS, WITH HIS COAT AND TROUSERS ALONGSIDE HIM. Nothing was found to indicate any degree of certainty that the deceased had taken his own life, even if it were his intention to do so. It seems to me an extraordinary thing that the deceased should have gone under the house to commit an act that would result in his death. It could have been that the deceased was the victim of foul play, though the police report said there was nothing to indicate foul play, but I cannot altogether exclude that possibility. Quote. In arguably the most extraordinary circumstances in Australian criminal history, William MacDonald, the man who had committed five atrocious murders, was a free man, if only he had known it. And if he had never gone back to Sydney, he may well have been a free man to this day. Unaware that he was supposedly dead and buried, MacDonald stayed a short time in Brisbane before going to New Zealand, still in the belief that the police would be looking for him. But the urge to kill was still with him, and it was getting stronger every day. Mr. Cox's suspicions of a sloppy police investigation became a reality about six months after the supposed death of Alan Brennan, when one of MacDonald's old workmates, John McCarthy, bumped head-on into the man he had known as Brennan, as he was walking down crowded George Street in the heart of Sydney. McCarthy nearly died of shock. As he had no idea that the murdered James had been buried as the missing Brennan, MacDonald was surprised when his old work friend was so stunned to see him. McCarthy told MacDonald that he was supposed to be dead. Puzzled, MacDonald asked what on earth McCarthy was talking about. Still in shock, McCarthy told MacDonald the following, and I quote, They found your body underneath your shop at Burwood. We went to your funeral service. But if you're alive, who was the body under your shop? And why did you run away? As it dawned on MacDonald what had happened, he ran away down the street. That night he was on a train to Melbourne. John McCarthy went to the police but they did not believe him when he told them that he had just conversed with a dead man. The desk sergeant told him to go home and sleep it off. The desk sergeant still did not believe him the following day when he went back and told them the same story. They said he was crazy, and in desperation John McCarthy rang the Daily Mirror newspaper and spoke to renowned crime reporter Joe Morris. The Daily Mirror ran the story, and the now-legendary headline, Case of the Walking Corpse, was created. As a direct result of John McCarthy's sighting of the dead man, and the intense media interest in the bizarre case, police were forced to reopen the investigation. Closer scrutiny of the clothes found beside the dead man revealed that the number 1262 written in ink on the inside of the coat sleeve was that of a garment supplied to a Patrick Joseph Hackett on his release from Long Bay Jail on the 27th of October 1962 after serving a ten-day term for indecent language. An embarrassed police commissioner was forced to exhume the corpse and closer examination revealed the stab wounds and the mutilation to Hackett's penis and testicles. From a much closer examination of what was left of the fingerprints, they discovered that the body was that of the petty thief James Hackett and not the mild-mannered shopkeeper Alan Brennan. After the Walking Corpse headline appeared in papers across the nation, other witnesses came forward, which included a man whose business was next door to Brennan's shop, who said that he was certain that he had seen Brennan and another man in the shop on the evening before Brennan disappeared. John McCarthy supplied an extremely lifelike identikit of the missing Brennan, and it was circulated on the front page of every paper across the nation. Meanwhile, William MacDonald had taken a job on the railways in Melbourne, and even though he had dyed his hair and had a light moustache, there was no mistaking that he was the missing Brennan. Police felt sure that, at last, if not belatedly, they were onto the mutilator. Brennan's new colleagues were on to him immediately, and as he asked the stationmaster for his pay for the three days that he had worked, the police swooped in on the meek and mild-mannered little man who had brought Australia's biggest city to its knees, and took him to Russell Street for questioning. William MacDonald did not oppose his extradition to Sydney to face murder charges. The crowd was at Sydney Airport to greet the two detectives and get the first glimpses of Australia's most grotesque and notorious serial killer. They were to be disappointed. The thin, short, shy MacDonald was nothing like the beast that they imagined was capable of such grotesque crimes. William MacDonald confessed to everything. Charged with four counts of murder, he pleaded not guilty on the grounds of insanity. His trial, held in September 1963, was one of the most sensational the country had ever seen, and the public hung on to every word of horror that fell from the mutilator's mouth. When he testified how he stabbed one of his victims in the neck thirty times, and then removed the man's testicles and penis with the same knife, a woman in the jury fainted. Justice McLennan stopped the proceedings and excused the juror from the rest of the grisly evidence. He then ordered MacDonald to continue. The gallery listened in awe as MacDonald told of the killings in great detail. He explained how the blood had sprayed all over his raincoat as he castrated his victims, put their private parts in a plastic bag, and took them home. The jury was repulsed when he explained what he did with the genitals when he arrived back at his lodgings. The jury did not take long to find William MacDonald guilty of four counts of murder, as everyone thought that the mutilator was crazy, there was yet another sensation when the jury chose not to go with public opinion and found him to have been sane at the time of the murders. Before passing sentence, Mr. Justice MacLennan said that it was the most barbaric case of murder and total disregard for human life that had come before him in his many years on the bench. William MacDonald had shown no signs of remorse, and had made it quite clear that, if he were free, he would go on killing as often as the urges came upon him. William MacDonald was sentenced to prison for life, and his papers were marked likely to offend again. Shortly after his incarceration, he bashed another prisoner almost to death with a slops bucket in Long Bay Jail and, as a result, was declared insane by a panel of doctors. MacDonald spent the next sixteen years at the Morisset Psychiatric Centre for the Criminally Insane on the New South Wales Central Coast. In 1980, William MacDonald was found sane enough to be released back into mainstream prison society, and has since been in the protective custody section of Cessnock Prison, about a two-hour drive northwest from Sydney. He requested to live in this section of the prison because it was quieter, and he would not be disturbed by the prison thugs. Here he lived a reclusive existence, reading and listening to classical music, and was known as Old Bill. On the 12th of May, 2015, William MacDonald died in Long Bay Hospital at age 90. He spent 50 years in prison, the longest-serving convict in New South Wales history. When offered the opportunity to apply for parole, he refused. He said the following as his reason for refusal, and I quote, I have no desire to go and live on the outside. I wouldn't last five minutes. End quote. Furthermore, his urges never went away. He confessed that he could have killed many more men had he been allowed to do so. Have you ever googled your own name? And with that, we come to the end of the saga of The Mutilator. I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next episode will feature a fresh new serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. What follows is a message to my dear Norwegian listeners in Norwegian. Jeg minner om at min norsk podcast Serimuldepodden Är er tillgänglig och lycka till både på Spotify, Apple podcasts och alla andra steder du hör på podcast. Vi närmar oss sluten på serien om BTK, så som det ser i Radioland Följ med.